Esther chapter 2. And as we study this book, we are zeroing in on God's providence. God may not be mentioned in this book, but we can see Him working behind the scenes to arrange situations which will ultimately preserve Judah here in the book of Esther. And tonight being our 10th week in this series, we have no time to recap all that we've covered. But I do want to refresh our minds just a little bit since it's been a couple of weeks since we last met on, on this series. Remember in chapter 1 that Ahasuerus has Vashti de- deposed as queen and he issues a decree that she can no longer enter into his presence. So though the Bible doesn't use the word, he essentially divorces his wife. All because he made a drunken decree when he was not in a right mind. As we come to chapter 2, three years has passed. I'm of the opinion that Ahasuerus is Xerxes of secular history. I've been growing in that opinion, if you've noticed, throughout this series, and now I'm I'm of that opinion officially. Amen. I'm coming out as, as pro Ahasuerus Xerxes. Amen. Um, and so that three-year period, I'll say a little bit more because we'll be in verse 16 tonight, but that three-year period was that campaign against Greece, I believe. So this is why chapter 2 opens up with the king feeling dejected. The Bible says his wrath has been appeased. His desire to expand the, in, the empire it's been a piece, he's been defeated, and now he's down and out. He remembers Vashti, but it's too late. Because once a Persian decree was issued, it couldn't be revoked. And so he can't have Vashti back even if he wanted to. Well, the officers of the king, they realize, hey, he's not doing too well. So we've got an idea. Let's round up fair young virgins from throughout the entire empire Let's have them brought to Shushan, and whichever one pleases the king the most, she can be the next queen. And so, remember, this is not a fairy tale process. This is legalized human trafficking. Hundreds of young virgins were rounded up against their will, and they're going to be forced to lose their purity to this man. And all of them but one is going to spend the rest of their life as a concubine. They'll never see their families again. They'll never see their homeland again. And honestly, they'll likely never be outside the palace again. And they won't even see the king again unless he calls for them by name. This is going to be a miserable existence is what I'm saying. It's really no life at all. So I don't, you know, sometimes when preachers teach the book of Esther, it's like she's entering the contest. No, these women are being forced to enter this thing. And so it's not this happy, well, I'm going to cast my lot in and we'll just see if God's providence works out. That's not what's happening here. But through this, it is how Mordecai and Esther show up on the scene. Remember that Esther or Hadassah's parents have passed off the scene. Mordecai, her uncle, raises her as his own. And Esther ends up as one of these fair young virgins rounded up to appear before the king. Here they are living in Persian exile. They should have returned to the land. But they stayed. 
They already put down roots. They've already opened up shop. This is where they're at. Why, up, why uproot and move? And so now here they are. They're in this Persian exile. And Esther's now one of these that is rounded up. Remember, it was a 12-month process of purification. And during this time, we began to take note of God's providence and how he's working in, in her life because she was preferred above all the other ladies by Haggai, the keeper of the women. And so she was given the best place in the house of the women. And last time we got to verse 15, Esther's 12 months has passed, and her turn to go in unto the king has arrived. And we took note of how she required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. She was going to appear as natural as she could before the king. And she was going to trust the provision of Haggai that he knew what was best for her to go in to see the king and impress him. And in all of this, we saw a picture of Christ. What can you give to a king who already owns it all? Yourself. Amen? There's nothing you can do to impress God. Amen? He has it all. You can't add to His stature. You can't add to His riches. You can't add to His power. And so what do you give a king who has it all? You give him yourself. And the only way that you can appear before God is to simply trust the provisions of our heavenly keeper, the Lord Jesus Christ, what He did for us. God does not want our fabricated beauty. He doesn't need your works and your trappings of religion and all of these observances, but God wants us to appear before Him clothed with Christ's righteousness, which, by the way, He provides. And through His righteousness, we obtain God's favor. So just give yourself to God as a living sacrifice. That's all He wants from you. You say, what does it require? It requires nothing. She required nothing. She simply trusted Haggai. What does it take? Nothing. Just trust Christ. And I, I'll say, if you missed last time, you need to listen to it. It was worth your, it'd be worth your time to listen to that one. Most of them are not worth your time, even though I tell you they are. That one's worth your time. All right. This brings us to where we left off. Let's begin reading tonight in chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter, was come to go in unto the king. She required nothing but what Haggai, the king's chamberlain, the keeper of the women, appointed. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of them all that looked upon her. So Esther was taken unto King Ahasuerus into his house royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. So as we come to verse 16, we get some time frame information here that I just mentioned before, but I'll break it down one last time here and make a quick point before we move on. 
the sixth month feast that we studied in chapter 1 is said to have taken place in Ahasuerus' third year of his reign. In verse 16, we see Esther is taken unto the king in the seventh year of his reign, and with a 12-month time of purification, we know that four years has passed, three years from chapter 1 to chapter 2, which coincides with that Persian invasion of Greece. So in verse 1, when we read of how the king remembered Vashti, it took him three years. Sometimes bad decisions that are made in haste will take years to be fully manifested until you feel the weight of those things bearing down upon you. Our sin has a way of finding us out. Now, God in His Word has a way of letting us know what's going on without telling us what's going on. (laughs) You like that? That's deep. But try to imagine, if you will, what Esther's going through this night. Physically speaking, Esther was the total package. Verse 7 says she was fair and beautiful. Beautiful there means she had a pretty face, she had a lovely countenance, or she was easy on the eyes. And to be fair means she had a lovely figure. And so she's the total package here, physically speaking. And I've mentioned in the past, we see some things here about her in this chapter which are beginning to reveal her character as well. She appears to be adorned with a meek and quiet spirit. We see that in how she chose to appear before the king. She didn't have all the outward adornings, as Peter writes about and says you need to have a meek and quiet spirit. And she goes before the king in that way. And we see in verse 20 that she was obedient and respectful. And we'll see as this account unfolds that she's also a woman of great courage. She's going to put her life on the line to go in before the king without being asked to come into his presence, which is a death sentence if he doesn't receive you, regardless if you're his wife. (laughs) And I'm just trying to make the point here by telling you all this, that this was a woman any man would desire, and no doubt she's been raised right with the intent to be with the kind of man that would compliment her properly. I'm sure those of you who raise kids understand what I'm trying to say. We don't just raise our kids in church in hopes that they get a bum. And he's raised her right. She's physically attractive. She's spiritually attractive. And and so this woman here, who's both beautiful inwardly and outwardly, many consider her to be a virtuous woman. She's never used her beauty, her outward beauty, to her advantage. She's never used it inappropriately. She's saved herself. She's pure. But now, all of who she is is being handed over to a pagan man. Can you imagine? I mean, as a parent, how would you feel? She's being forced before the king, a perverted man who is at least twice her age, old enough to be her father. Some think he might even be a little bit older than that. She's being forced before this man. She knows what this night has in store. She's going to lose her purity against her will. I can only imagine the range of emotions that 
this poor girl is going through, and all these ladies that ended up going in before the king. This is not what Mordecai had envisioned for her. This is not who he would have had for her, raising her the way he did. And this cannot be what she hoped for growing up. How many women dream of their, their wedding day? And now here it is, and this isn't what I wanted. But I want to remind you yet again, this is a people who are out of the will of God. And when you don't separate yourself from a pagan culture, then expect pagan things to happen to you. Remember Lot? He encamps towards Sodom. Before we know it, he's sitting in the gate. Which means he didn't just move towards Sodom. He moved in. He, he immersed himself amongst a pagan and perverted people. And sure enough, that's exactly what he ends up dealing with. Two angels come to Sodom. You probably know the account. They're, Lot brings them to his house. And while they're at his house, the men of the city, both young and old from every quarter of the city, the Bible says, comes to the door and they began to request that these men be brought out so that the crowd can know them. Lot's response, culture aside in those days, I could not imagine saying, here's my two virgin daughters, do with them as you see fit. That's what he says. After the angels drag Lot, his wife, and two of their daughters out of the city, God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. As you know, Lot's wife couldn't help herself. She turned around and became a pillar of salt. Lot eventually ends up in a cave. And his oldest daughter gets the idea, let's liquor up our father and let's lay with him that we may preserve his seed. The next night, the younger daughter does the same. They get him drunk again. And both of them end up impregnated by Lot. And they become the mothers of Moab and Ammon. Thorns in the sides of Israel. Now, where do you think they got such an idea for that kind of perversion? I believe it was from immersing themselves in a pagan culture while living in a perverted city outside of the will of God. By the way, our kids are learning a lot of things in school, public school, that they otherwise would not be entering their minds yet. I believe parents should be the one to decide when a child's ready to talk about those things. I just saw the other day that uh, there was going to be a class held for 9 to 12 years old, 12 year olds on how to deal with yourself. Sorry, now that Patch and Pee Wee are out, I don't want to say things the way I normally would. But it's just sickening what's happening out there and the ages in which it is happening. And this is what happens in a pagan culture. And you see, this is the danger when you and I neglect God's best and we just settle and we begin to compromise, or when we decide we're just going to do whatever we want over what God says. Now, understand, we can live in a pagan culture and still be righteous. We can choose to do the right thing. I don't care what's legalized and what's not. We can still make the right decision righteously. But I'm talking about starting to compromise on those things and start to sidle up next to some of these things and realize that now I'm starting to be impacted by this pagan culture. 
Because here's what I want you to understand from this point. Life ends up getting really messy. Esther's now having to deal with a very difficult and cruel situation. She never should have found herself in all of this, but Mordecai decided to remain in exile. She should not be with a pagan man being forced against her will, but here she is. Pagan living produces pagan consequences. The difference here in the book of Esther is how God's providence is going to be worked out through all of this to preserve the line of Judah. The family Bible note states this, quote, God is able to overrule those actions of men that are in themselves neither wise nor righteous for the accomplishment of His own most wise and righteous counsels, end quote. And thank God He is. Amen. I can look back in my life and see where God decided to take the reins and say, okay, here's what you need. This is the direction you need to be going. I didn't see it at the time. I see it now. Moving on to verse 17, we read, And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, I'm not sure how true this love really is. It says it, and I guess I need to just take it for what it says, but how can a pagan man love the same as a man who knows God? Amen. You'll love your wife better in Christ. Regardless of, of how deep this love is, she obtains favor and grace above all the other virgins. And in this we see how amazing God's providence is here to this poor, young, orphaned, Jewish girl, a product of the captivity, living in exile, now being exalted as queen over the largest empire in the world. This is absolutely amazing. Amen. This is amazing that this is taking place. Uh, 1 Samuel 2, verses 7 and 8, The Lord maketh poor and maketh rich. He bringeth low and he lifteth up. He raiseth up the poor out of the dust and lifteth up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among princes and to make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and he has set the world upon them. Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. It's interesting it doesn't say not from the north. Because who dwells on the sides of the north? Our great king. Anyway, but God is the judge. He putteth down one and he setteth up another. So make no mistake, even though God is not mentioned, God is behind the scenes here in verse 17. And I was reminded as I was preparing for this what Brother Long said at our God and Country Rally Monday. Make your plans, but be ready for God to override your plans. Amen. Something to that effect. That's probably not a direct quote, okay? So don't tell them. God will move in our lives. He will set us where He wants us. Even when we are not in agreement with God, not living in His will, God is still at work. J. Vernon McGee wrote this, quote, There are many things in this world that God's people do, and in the doing are out of His will. In spite of it all, God will overrule and make circumstances work out for His glory and for the fulfillment of His purpose. 
Esther was disobeying God, absolutely. But that did not mean that she was out from under the controlling care of Almighty God, end quote. What a great statement. And as we would expect, in verse 18, the king throws a marriage celebration. Then the king made a great feast unto all his princes and his servants, even Esther's feast. And he made a release to the provinces and gave gifts according to the state of the king. So he makes a feast in Esther's honor, and the phrase that we read here, he made a release to the provinces, it means that whatever taxation, whatever tribute he had the provinces under, he gives them a release from that for some season. We don't know how long. And both of these things were customary to do in occasions like this, these big occasions in those days. In verse 19, we read, And when the virgins were gathered together the second time, then Mordecai sat in the king's gate. Now, commentators agree that the first phrase here in verse 19 is a very difficult one to understand. It either means all the virgins originally gathered were brought together again as some part of some celebration here, or there was a second collection of virgins to try to and appease the king's lust. And most agree it's the latter, that there was another gathering in of concubines. The second half of this verse is intriguing though. We know from verse 11 that Mordecai had the ability to walk every day before the court of the women, which implies he must have had some sort of position in order to do so, whether a servant's position or not, we don't know. But it appears here in verse 19 that he has now been elevated to a greater position than before. Because to sit in the king's gate, it means that you're an officer of some sort. Perhaps you're a judge and you're helping with matters in the gate. Some think he was merely a porter in the gate, just a remedial type job. But I think what this is likely showing us here is that Esther's new position as queen worked to Mordecai's benefit. And she's likely put in a good word for him. In other words, this is nepotism. This is the good old boy network. Amen? We find in this politics has not changed. Let's get who we want. Let's help our family out. Let's hook them up. I believe that's probably what's happening here. And the reason I do, and the reason this makes sense to me, is because of what is stated at the beginning of verse 20. It says, Esther had not showed her kindred nor her people as Mordecai had charged her. That's the same phrase we read in verse 10. We are told this in verse 10 after we are told how Esther had been preferred to the best place of the house of the women, which seems to imply that had they known she was a Jew, she would not have experienced this preferment. Likewise, in verse 20, we read this phrase, after we are told how Mordecai sat in the king's gate, it seems to imply he would not have this position if they knew he was a Jew. Does that make sense? Now, we need to close here at the end of verse 20. It says, For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai, like as when she was brought up with him. Now, I mentioned while in verse 10 
that the reason for this is ultimately due to God's providence. But they should not have been ashamed of who they were. I don't need to re-preach all that, I don't think, but listen, as Christians, we should not be ashamed of who we are. Because when we hide our Christianity, we're hiding our connection to God. Just like in those days, if a Jew hid their nationality, they're hiding their connection to God. This is a problem. But ultimately, God's providence is in this because this information is being withheld due to what's going to happen down the road. Of course, God knows the end from the beginning. And He knows that there's going to be an attack against all of Judah. And so this information is being withheld so Haman can look like an idiot down the road here. Amen, we'll get to that. But what we see here at the end of verse 20, we see again the character of Esther. This is, an, this is an amazing woman. And this statement here at the end of verse 20 is amazing because even while she's married, she's taking the instruction from the man who raised her. Despite her great advancement, she still has great humility. She never forsook the guide of her youth. She still respected and obeyed her father. Which tells me a father's counsel is still important. And a mother's. I don't care what position you get to in your life, you can't overrule, honor your mother and father. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 3, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Colossians 3.20 says on this verse, because it's almost a direct quote, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Now, I can't find where marriage ends this commandment. Now, I understand things change when people get married, but there still should be a respect for parents so long as there's nothing illegal, immoral, or unethical being suggested. There ought to be obedience and honor. That's not me, that's the Word of God. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. My son, hear the instruction of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. Proverbs 6, verses 20 through 23. My son, keep thy father's commandment, and forsake not the law of thy mother, Bind them continually upon thine heart, and tie them about thy neck. When thou goest, it shall lead thee. When thou sleepest, it shall keep thee. And when thou awakest, it shall talk with thee. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law is light. And reproofs of instructions are the way of life. And so we should always, there's no expiration date, we should always have a great deal of respect gratitude and kindness for those that God has placed in our life to give us instruction and, and reproof and to guide us in the way of life. But often our pride gets in the way. Or as my dad would say, you're getting too big for your britches. There's never a point when the words of a parent are to be pushed aside. I'm not saying that they always have to be agreed upon but there should at least be respect. And we don't ever get to the place, according to the Bible, where we no longer need to listen to authority figures in our life. 
I've been out of my parents' house now for 27 years. I've been married for 26 of those years. But I still call my parents for advice. And though we both know that I've failed them, I do my best to honor and obey them. Why? Because it's right. I love how Matthew Henry put this. Quote, Esther, who was advanced to the throne, was observant of him, speaking of Mordecai. This was an evidence of a humble and grateful disposition that she had a sense of his former kindness and his continued wisdom. It is a great ornament to those that are advanced and much to their praise to remember their benefactors, to retain the impressions of their good education, to be diffident, which means to be reserved or hesitant, of themselves, willing to take advice and thankful for it. (laughs) So I want to ask you tonight, are you too prideful to hear instruction and wisdom? You say, but I'm grown. I'm married. I've been on my own for years. That may be so. But are you humble enough to be willing to take advice and then be thankful for it? And while we're on this thought, it's not just parents. We all need to realize that those who are older have gone through more of life and therefore have more experience. In other words, whether you like to hear it or not, they're wiser than you. 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. It's interesting how that verse says if you'll... How you respect your earthly authority is going to reveal how you're going to respect your heavenly authority. This is why most people, when they're preparing their children for marriage, say, watch how he talks to his mother. Because that's how he's going to talk to you. Amen. Watch how his life is with his parents or her. Because that's how their life is going to be with God. The verse is so clear. Submit yourself to earthly authorities... Humble yourselves under God. So it's just interesting how they tie together. I often have a hard time getting that point across. But we ought to respect parents. We ought to respect our elders. And then we ought to have respect for those in positions of authority as well. Here's a verse about the office of a pastor. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. The Bible doesn't say, do those things if you agree with how they said it. I don't like the way you said that. I don't care. Is it truth or not? Amen. Well, I'll agree with obeying and listening and submitting if I agree with what is said. That's not what the Bible says. And we are witnessing a major generation gap in our society today. I don't know about you, but I would never, ever been disrespectful to police. I would never get away with being disrespectful to my dad. For one, he'd have beat me down. 
And if I was too old, he'd say, get your stuff and don't let the door hit you on the way out. We're to do so because the Bible says it is right. Our response reveals our heart. And here's what I've discovered. Many people like the idea of a pastor until he tries to be your pastor. It's a fact. Great message, preacher. Hey, can I talk to you? Who do you think you are? I was talking to a friend the other day, and I said, you know, you just keep putting yourself back out there. You're going to be trampled on. You're going to be run over. You're going to be railroaded. You're going to be stabbed. You quit on Monday. You get back at it on Tuesday. What's the problem? People don't have a respect for authority today. Out of all the ones that I watched, out of the people who died at the hands of the police, it always followed disobedience to a clear command. I don't need to listen to the police. I can't wait to move out of here. We're just going to find another church. I know what the Bible says, but... It's all because of pride, and there's a lack of respect for God-given authority in our life. So on that note, as I wrap this up, don't get too big for your britches. Learn from Esther's example. Be willing to receive instruction and be respectful and obedient along the way. Let's pray.